This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of distal femur fractures from the trauma section on orthobullets.com. Distal femur fractures were traditionally seen in young patients, but these injuries have been increasing in the geriatric population. There is a bimodal distribution of young healthy males and elderly osteopenic females. Keep in mind that periprosthetic fractures are becoming more common. With respect to the mechanism of injury, young patients sustain these injuries from a high-energy mechanism with significant displacement. Older patients sustain these injuries with low energy, often a fall from standing, an osteoporotic bone, and usually with less displacement. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy, specifically the osteology and the pathomechanics. With respect to the osteology, the distal femur becomes trapezoidal in cross-section towards the knee. The medial condyle extends more distal than lateral, and the posterior halves of both condyles are posterior to the posterior cortex of the femoral shaft. The anatomical axis of the distal femur is 6 to 7 degrees of valgus. The lateral cortex of the femur slopes approximately 10 degrees. The medial cortex slopes approximately 25 degrees in the axial plane. As far as the pathomechanics, the gastrocnemius extends the distal fragment, apex posterior, the hamstring and the extensor mechanism causes shortening, and the adductor magnus leads to distal femoral varus. With respect to the classification of distal femur fractures, there's a descriptive classification and the OTA classification. The descriptive classification is simply whether the distal femur fracture is supracondylar or intercondylar. The OTA classification designates distal femur fractures a number of 33, and it's subdivided into three subtypes, A, B, and C. A 33A is extraarticular, a 33B is partial articular, where a portion of the articular surface remains in continuity with the shaft, and a 33B3 is in the coronal plane, otherwise known as the Hoffa fragment. Finally, a 33C is complete articular, where the articular fragment is separated from the shaft. With respect to the presentation of distal femur fractures, on physical exam, you may find pain, deformity, and swelling localizing to the distal thigh-slash-knee in these patients. Make sure to evaluate skin integrity, and finally do a thorough vascular evaluation, as there is potential for injury to the popliteal artery if there's significant displacement. If there's no pulse after gross alignment is restored, then angiography is indicated. Make sure to do a full trauma evaluation in these patients if there is a high-energy mechanism involved. With respect to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP and a lateral. Optional views include traction views, views of adjacent joints, and the contralateral femur. With respect to traction views, an AP lateral and oblique traction view can help characterize the injury but are painful for the patient. You should consider views of the adjacent joints of the remainder of the extremity to rule out associated injuries. You should also consider views of the contralateral femur for preoperative planning and templating. Findings on radiographs can include a Hoffa fracture, which is an intraarticular distal femur fracture in the coronal plane, and this may be seen on the lateral view. In elderly patients, evaluate for any pre-existing knee degenerative joint disease. A CT scan should be obtained with coronal and sagittal reconstructions. This is useful for establishing intraarticular involvement, identifying separate osteochondral fragments in the area of the intercondylar notch, and identifying the coronal plane fracture, otherwise known as a Hoffa fracture. There's a 38% incidence of Hoffa fractures in type C fractures. A CT scan is also useful for preoperative planning. If temporizing external fixation is required, a CT should be obtained after external fixation. 
angiography is indicated when there's diminished distal pulses after gross alignment is restored. Consider angiography if the distal femur fracture is associated with a knee dislocation. Treatment of distal femur fractures can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management involves a hinged knee brace with immediate range of motion and non-weight-bearing for six weeks. This is typically rare, however indications include non-displaced fractures, a non-ambulatory patient, or a patient with significant comorbidities presenting with an unacceptably high degree of surgical-slash-anesthetic risk. Operative options include external fixation, open reduction internal fixation, retrograde intramedullary nail, or a distal femoral replacement. External fixation is a temporizing measure until soft tissue permits internal fixation or until the patient is stable. Make sure to avoid pin placement in the area of the planned plate placement if possible. Open reduction internal fixation is indicated for a displaced fracture, an intraarticular fracture, or for a non-union. The goals of open reduction internal fixation is that you need anatomic reduction of the joint. Other goals include stable fixation of the articular component to the shaft to permit early motion. And finally, the other goal of open reduction internal fixation is to preserve vascularity. We'll discuss the technique of an open reduction internal fixation in more detail in a moment. Postoperatively, after an open reduction internal fixation, early range of motion of the knee is important. These patients are typically non-weight-bearing or toe-touch weight-bearing for 6 to 8 weeks or up to 10 to 12 weeks if the fracture is comminuted. With respect to rehabilitation, these patients will focus on quadriceps and hamstring strength exercises. A retrograde intramedullary nail is indicated for supracondylar fractures without significant comminution. This is a preferred implant in osteoporotic bone. Traditionally, 4 centimeters of intact distal femur is needed, but newer implants with very distal interlocking options may decrease this number, and you can perform independent screw stabilization of the intercondylar component of the fracture around the nail. Again, a retrograde intramedullary nail is good for supracondylar fractures without significant comminution. It's the preferred implant in osteoporotic bone, and traditionally 4 centimeters of intact distal femur is needed, but newer implants with very distal interlocking options may decrease this number, and you can perform independent screw stabilization of intercondylar components of the fracture around the nail. A distal femoral replacement is indicated for an unreconstructable fracture, or for fractures around a prior total knee arthroplasty with a loose component. Now let's go over some of these surgical techniques in a bit more detail, specifically open reduction internal fixation approaches, blade plate fixation, dynamic condylar screw placement, locked plate fixation, non-fixed angle plates, and a retrograde interlocked intramedullary nail. With respect to ORIF approaches, these include anterolateral, lateral power patellar, medial power patellar, and medial-slash-lateral posterior. An anterolateral approach is used for fractures without articular involvement or with simple articular extension. The incision should be made from the tibial tubercle to the anterior one-third of the distal femoral condyle. You can extend up the mid-lateral femoral shaft as needed. With respect to minimally invasive plate osteosynthesis, a small lateral incision is made, then you can slide the plate proximally, and you can use stab incisions for proximal screw placement. A lateral power patellar approach can be used for fractures with complex articular extension. Make sure to extend the incision into the quad tendon to evert the patella. This approach can also be used for Hoffa fractures. A medial power patellar approach is the typical total knee arthroplasty approach. This is used for complex medial femoral condyle fractures. 
a medial slash lateral posterior approach is used for very posterior Hoffa fragment fixation. The patient is placed in the prone position and a midline incision is made over the popliteal fossa. You will develop a plane between the medial and lateral gastrocnemius muscle. And finally, a capsulotomy will be made to visualize the fracture. Moving on to blade plate fixation, this is not commonly used as it's technically difficult. And keep in mind that it's contraindicated in type C3 fractures. The blade plate is placed 1.5 centimeters from the articular surface. Moving on to dynamic condylar screw placement, the indications are identical to a 95 degree angled blade plate. And as far as the technique, precise sagittal plane alignment is not necessary. And the dynamic condylar screw is placed 2 centimeters from the articular surface. The cons of this option is there's a large amount of bone removed with the dynamic condylar screw, and it's difficult to place. With respect to locked plate fixation, fixed angle lock screws provide improved fixation in short distal femoral blocks. Locked plate fixation is also indicated in supracondylar periprosthetic femur fractures in cruciate retaining total knee arthroplasty. Keep in mind, however, that the TKA component must be well fixed to proceed with fracture fixation. This technique involves lag screws with locked screws in a hybrid construct. It's useful for intercondylar fractures, usually in conjunction with a locked plate. It's also useful for coronal plane fractures. This option helps obtain anatomic reduction of the joint, and keep in mind that it's required in displaced articular fractures. The pros of this option is that percutaneous lateral application can minimize soft tissue stripping and obviate the need for a medial plate. The cons are that there is a potential to create too stiff a construct, leading to non-union or plate failure. Moving on to non-fixed angle plates, these are now largely obsolete due to the tendency for varus malalignment. Finally, retrograde interlocked intramedullary nails are good for supracondylar fractures without significant comminution and is the preferred implant in osteoporotic bone. A short nail is rarely indicated and the implant should at least reach the lesser trochanter. The approach is medial parapetellar, and when there is no articular extension present, you will make a 2.5 centimeter incision parallel to the medial aspect of the patellar tendon. You will stay inferior to the patella, as there is no attempt to visualize the articular surface. If you're using a medial parapetellar approach and articular extension is present, continue the approach 2 to 8 centimeters cephalad. You will incise the extensor mechanism 10 millimeters medial to the patella. E-version of the patella is not typically necessary. However, keep in mind that you need to stabilize the articular segments prior to nail placement. The pros of retrograde interlocked intramedullary nailing is that it requires minimal dissection of the soft tissues. However, the cons is that there's less axial and rotational stability, and there's also post-operative knee pain. Now, let's go over some surgical complications, specifically symptomatic hardware, malunions, nonunions, infection, and implant failure. With respect to symptomatic hardware, a lateral plate may cause pain with knee flexion slash extension due to the IT band's contact with the plate. Medial screw irritation can be from excessively long screws, which can irritate the medial soft tissues. Make sure to determine appropriate intercondylar screw length by obtaining an AP radiograph of the knee with the leg internally rotated 30 degrees. Malunions are most commonly associated with plating, usually valgus. Functional results are satisfactory if malalignment is within 5 degrees in any plane. Nonunions are present in up to 19% of cases and are most commonly in the metaphyseal area with the articular portion healed. Nonunions are more likely in the metaphysis in the setting of comminution, bone loss, and open fractures. 
Keep in mind that non-unions are decreasing with less invasive techniques. Treatment of non-unions is with revision, open reduction, internal fixation, and autograft. Consider changing the fixation technique to improve biomechanics. With respect to infection, treat these cases with debridement, culture-specific antibiotics, and hardware removal if fracture stability permits. Implant failure occurs in up to 9% of cases. Keep in mind that titanium plates may be superior to stainless steel plates, and implant failure is most likely due to improper bridge plating techniques. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply this information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, What is a known risk factor for lateral distal femoral locking plate failure when used for the fixation of a comminuted extraarticular fracture? And the choices are 1. Early postoperative knee range of motion. 2. Delayed weight bearing. 3. Short working length of the construct. 4. Bridge plate fixation. And 5. Plate screw density less than 0.5. The correct answer to this question is 3. Short working length of the construct. So of the listed options, a short working length of the construct is a known risk factor for femoral plate failure. Implant failure is common in distal femur fractures stabilized with plate fixation. Contributors to failure include a short working length of the construct, plate screw density more than 0.5, and short plate lengths. This will lead to failure as it causes increased strain on the plate over a short segment and does not allow enough motion at the fracture site to form bone for healing by secondary intention. Ricci et al. reviewed 355 cases of distal femur plate fixation. 64 patients, or 19% of those studied, required reoperation to promote union, including 30 that had a planned staged bone grafting. Risk factors for proximal implant failure included open fracture, smoking, increased body mass index, and shorter plate length. Krieger et al. reviewed 119 patients with distal femoral plate fixation. They found that 93% of fractures healed without acute bone grafting. Complications included five losses of proximal fixation, two non-unions, and three acute infections. Moving on to the next question. During surgical treatment of the most common variation of distal femoral Hoffa fractures, which of the following orientations for screw fixation should be used? And the choices are 1. Medial to lateral screw placement across the lateral femoral condyle. 2. Anterior to posterior screw placement across the medial femoral condyle. 3. Medial to lateral screw placement across the medial femoral condyle. 4. Anterior to posterior screw placement across the lateral femoral condyle, and 5. Anterior to posterior screw placement across the intercondylar notch. The correct answer to this question is 4. Anterior to posterior screw placement across the lateral femoral condyle. So the most common variation of a Hoffa fracture is a coronal fracture of the lateral femoral condyle. The most appropriate screw placement of the choices given in the treatment of the most common Hoffa fracture variant would be anterior to posterior screws across the lateral condyle for fixation. Hoffa fractures are coronally oriented fractures of the femoral condyles with most occurring in the lateral condyle. They are commonly associated with high energy fractures of the distal femur and can often be overlooked during the assessment and treatment of distal femur fractures. Hoffa fractures are best evaluated using CT scans. Nork et al. studied the association of supracondylar intercondylar distal femoral fractures and coronal plane fractures. Of 202 supracondylar intercondylar distal femoral fractures, they found coronal plane fractures were diagnosed in 38% of cases. 
a coronal fracture of the lateral femoral condyle was involved more frequently than the medial condyle. 85% of these coronal fractures involved a single lateral femoral condyle. Holmes et al. looked at five cases of coronal fractures of the femoral condyle. All cases received open reduction and internal fixation with lag screws through a formal parapatellar approach. They reported good results with all fractures healing within 12 weeks without complications with final range of motion at least 0 degrees to 115 degrees. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following findings is a contraindication in retrograde nailing of a periprosthetic distal femur fracture around a total knee arthroplasty? And the choices are 1. Posterior stabilized total knee implant. 2. Cruciate retaining total knee implant. 3. Spiral fracture pattern. 4. Distal femoral replacement. And 5. Knee flexion contracture of 15 degrees. The correct answer to this question is 4. Distal femoral replacement. So a distal femoral replacement implant will generally preclude placement of a retrograde nail due to the long stem of the femoral component. Supracondylar femur fractures above a well-fixed TKA component are increasingly common. These fractures are often treated with a lateral locking plate, but can also be treated with a retrograde nail in certain circumstances. An important factor in determining if nailing is a viable option are knowing the TKA implant and its design. In addition, if the TKA component is known, the maximum size of the reamer head and nail can be determined preoperatively from the size of the femoral box. Schutz et al. report on a prospective multicenter study of 112 patients who underwent fixation of a distal femur fracture with the LIS plating system. They report that 90% of fractures went on to union and they attribute all of the failures to either the high energy nature of partial fractures or a lack of experience in applying the plate in an appropriate pattern. They also note that primary grafting of these fractures is not necessary. Moving on to the next question. A 25-year-old man is involved in a motor vehicle accident and brought to the emergency department at 4 a.m. on Sunday morning. He has a closed distal third femoral shaft fracture. His leg is initially pulseless, but after applying inline traction, a distal pulse can be palpated and the limb appears to be viable. The pulse in the injured limb feels different than the pulse in the uninjured limb. What is the next step in assessing the vascular status of this limb? And the choices are 1. Serial physical examinations. 2. Angiography, 3. Duplex ultrasound examination, 4. Ankle brachial index, and 5. Measurement of compartment pressures. The correct answer to this question is 4. Ankle brachial index, or ABI. So the patient initially has a distal third femoral fracture and a pulseless limb. The first step is to reduce the fracture and reassess the vascular status. Although the pulse returns, it feels different than the quality of the pulse in the contralateral uninjured extremity. There is a risk of vascular injury with this fracture pattern due to the tethering of the femoral vessels at the adductor hiatus. Therefore, the vascular status needs further assessment since the pulses are not symmetrical. A physical examination is not very accurate in assessing whether a vascular injury is present. Therefore, serial examinations are not appropriate. Angiography is very sensitive and specific, but is time-consuming and can cause complications secondary to the dye and the arterial puncture required to perform it. Duplex ultrasound is effective, but is very operator-dependent and may not be available 24 hours a day. The ABI is easily performed and has been shown to be sensitive and specific. If the value is greater than 0.9, the negative predictive value is 99%, and when the value is less than 0.9, it is 95% sensitive and 97% specific for a major arterial injury. 
it has been shown to be useful for blunt lower extremity injuries as well as knee dislocations. Moving on to the next question. Fixation of a distal supracondylar femoral fracture with metaphyseal comminution is elected. When compared to conventional open plating, percutaneous submuscular reduction and fixation with a precontoured locking plate is associated with a higher incidence of, and the choices are 1. Non-union, 2. Compromise to medullary perfusion, 3. Compromise to periosteal perfusion, 4. Malreduction, and 5. Violation of the perforator vessels. The correct answer to this question is 4. Malreduction. So biological methods of fracture reduction and fixation continue to evolve. Minimally invasive methods offer a reduction in surgical trauma, enhanced union, and a minimization of complications associated with conventional open plating. Complex periarticular fractures of the lower extremity that cannot be adequately managed with intramedullary techniques of stabilization are particularly amenable to these techniques. Alignment is achieved with indirect reduction and fixation performed with the application of extra periosteal plates. Farouk and associates performed injection dye studies suggesting preservation of perforators and diminished compromise to both endosteal and periosteal perfusion when compared to open plating techniques. This trend is not without potential complications, particularly with regard to reduction. Credic and associates in two studies demonstrated diminished rates of infection and non-union but acknowledged a tendency toward malalignment, particularly rotational. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following treatments of an oligotrophic supracondylar femoral non-union has been shown to have the best outcome? And the choices are 1. Retrograde femoral nailing with adjunct BMP4 2. Hybrid external fixation with adjunct BMP4 3. Usage of a percutaneous locking plate with adjunct BMP3 4. Open reduction and plating with autograft and 5. Open reduction and plating with adjunct calcium phosphate the correct answer to this question is 4. Open reduction and plating with autograft. So oligotrophic femoral supracondylar nonunions have been shown to be best treated with open reduction and plating, or revision if there's a previous surgery, and usage of autologous bone grafting. The study by Bella Barba et al. is a case series of 100% union rate with an n equal to 19 of supracondylar femoral nonunions treated with revision ORIF and autografting. The study by Chapman et al. is also a case series of 100% union rate with an n equal to 18 of supracondylar non-unions treated with single or double plating and autograft. And moving on to the final question for this topic, which of the following is the most appropriate clinical scenario to utilize locking plate and screw technology? And the choices are 1. Intraarticular fracture, 2. Oblique ulnar diaphyseal fracture, 3. Osteoporotic periprosthetic distal femur fracture, for transverse tibial diaphyseal fracture, and five, spiral humeral diaphyseal metaphyseal fracture. The correct answer to this question is three, osteoporotic periprosthetic distal femur fracture. So conventional plating provides stable internal fixation when fractures are anatomically reduced. Stability of this type of fixation relies on the plate slash bone interface and the friction that develops between this interface. Locked plates rely on the plate-slash-screw interface, and each provides not only axial stability, but also angular stability. Each screw acts as a fixed-angle device. Indications for locked plating for indirect reduction includes 1. Metaphyseal-slash-diaphyseal fractures, 2. Comminuted diaphyseal fractures, 3. Comminuted metaphyseal fractures, and 4. Short-segment fixation. 
locked plates are not indicated for displaced articular fractures unless anatomic rigid fixation of the articular surface is done first. Locking technology cannot reduce fractures slash lag segments together. The article by Gardner et al. reviews locking technology and reminds us that compression technology using non-locking screws and plates is still needed for many fractures and is even required for proper treatment of some fractures. The article by Wagner is an instructional paper on how to use hybrid plating technology and reviews concepts such as the necessity of lag screw fixation before locking. The study by Egal et al. is a review paper that notes that locked plates and conventional plates rely on completely different mechanical principles to provide fracture fixation, and in so doing, they provide different biological environments for healing. They report that locked plates are indicated for indirect fracture reduction, diaphyseal-slash-metaphyseal fractures in osteoporotic bone, and with bridging severely comminuted fractures. That's all for this review about distal femur fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow. 